chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I want to read the whole of this chapter together. It's my intention to cover the chapter except Lord willing, return to the closing verses next Lord's Day. But it's a somewhat lengthy chapter. You constantly are exposed to reading portions of Scripture, lengthy and not lengthy. But in many ways, this is a chapter, there are some questions, but its argument is pretty straightforward. But I want us to give attention to it as we read together. So Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed Thy prophets and dig down Thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt then say, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, Take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, 
goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is My covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that He might have mercy upon all. O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? For who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And we can add our own Amen and thank God for his blessing upon the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we come in the name of a worthy Savior today. We come grateful for the privilege of sitting publicly, gathering without fears to be under the reading and preaching of Your Word. We pray that none of us would sit here idly again today. But Lord, that You would give us grace to preach and grace to hear. May we find Christ and rejoice in Him in this Word today. We pray it in His worthy name. Amen. We have been, I guess according to our previous speed going through the book of Romans, hurrying through these three chapters regarding Israel. I want to emphasize today it is not because of their unimportance that we've gone at such speed, but it's rather to make sure that we don't lose their place in the overall argument. Remember we said Paul is vitally and personally and emotionally wrapped up in this question that he's dealing with. He's dealt with other questions, logical progressions from what he's been teaching. But this question is one that is perhaps nearer to his heart than others. So these three chapters, this oft-called parenthesis, it's not an unattached ramble, but rather it's Paul's treatment of a serious question that could arise from what he's been presenting in his presentation of the Gospel. I think we have to say without question, this is a question 
that he's already dealt with in the various synagogues and churches that he's been preaching in throughout the empire. It's not a question that will certainly be off the minds of those in the first century. And I think it's something for us to plug in. You know, we, we grew up, well, some of us grew up in the 20th century and others this century, but that's its own. But we look at Romans and we say, okay, here's this section about Israel. In the first century, that question was much more prominent in their minds. What's going on? God's people, God's Scripture, everything we've seen has come through this channel. Now you're going forth, you're preaching there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We're all brought into this one body in Christ. What about Israel? It's a natural question. And if that question then arises, we come and see then, did God choose and promise things to Israel? If in this new, quote-unquote, gospel you're preaching, and it's the Jews accusing Paul of novelty, if in this new gospel you're preaching, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, isn't, wasn't all of that prior stuff then meaningless? I want to pause for a little bit today and step back to, we often speak of the, the big picture in the Scriptures. God moving and how He has moved through, well, the history of the world, which is the history of redemption. The world didn't deserve a history. It deserved immediate destruction along with its head that fell and cast it all into the curse. But God gave a second covenant. A covenant of grace. And in the outworking of that covenant, in that gathering of a people under the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, we see various cycles, various seasons in God's dealings with the world. From the very gates of Eden, man went forward and fell into great sin and apostasy even after the message and revelation of grace. And that ended in the judgment of the flood. God promised He would not again destroy the earth by a flood. Following the flood and the remnant that emerged from the ark and the family of Noah, what happened? The world again fell into deep apostasy. Rather than judging the earth, He divided the nations at Babel. But yet out of those nations, those peoples, He called a man to form another nation. Another people through whom He would bless the world, through whom He would fulfill His promise to send that second man. And so we see apostasy, the flood. We see apostasy, Babel, Abraham. Then we see that Abraham's people, the Jews themselves, descend into apostasy. They don't even recognize their promised Messiah when He comes. And so what is God doing then? He's following this apostasy with the chastening of Israel and the blessing of the nations. And we'll come back to that more fully, obviously, in our message. Remarkable that He visits the Gentiles afresh after our double season, if you will, of apostasy. And then we follow the story through the New Testament and we see that the church age will end in what? Yet again, apostasy. And yet, God's intervention then in the second advent as we will see today is blessing. 
Actually, what we read of and see in Romans 11 today is the story of the world's ultimate blessing. And so I want to come to look at Romans 11 today again, hurriedly taking the overview. We'll revisit the development of chapters 9 and 10 in a moment to again catch our spot and our context. But I just want to notice in chapter 11 and verse 1, this three-chapter section dealing with the question of Israel, Paul ultimately comes here in Romans 11.1 to state the question forthrightly and directly. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid. He meets the question with His characteristic, earnest, forceful negation. May it never be. God forbid. You can't answer this question any other way than no, He can't do it. He won't do it. So now, for some review. There are several related pieces of doctrine that we could have paused on in chapters 9 and 10. They're rich points of doctrine. They're difficult points of theology. Paul doesn't avoid them in the chapters that we've read and reviewed already. But he doesn't try and develop them. Work them out as it were apologetically the way we want to at times. He just assumes them. They're just true. God's sovereign. The doctrines of election and reprobation are real. The free offer of the Gospel in the midst of those truths is real. We could have paused, perhaps should have paused, later in chapter 10 to deal with the whole question of missionary activity, of preachers, of Christians giving the Word, of being those through which whosoever will will hear and believe. So Paul, I say, doesn't avoid these things. He just assumes them and makes them part of his argument. But the main argument we found in chapters 9 and 10 has been as follows. God called and formed Israel, but not all followed Him. Look back with chapter 9, verse 6. I want to review a few key verses. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. For they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. God, I say, called and formed Israel, but not all followed Him. And you remember going on from that, He gave the example of Ishmael. That son after the flesh that Abraham and Sarah sought to achieve God's promise through their own means. What a picture again of the fleshly views of rightly relating to God. We'll say, well, that's fine. Ishmael was not Sarah's son. He wasn't the son of the promise. So Isaac came. But then it's, it's not merely not just being of the seed of Abraham. But you can even be of the line of the promised seed of Isaac and not be part of true Israel. Jacob and Esau. Esau is Isaac's son. So God called and formed Israel but not all follow Him. The distinction then between Israel and Israel, if you will, is between faith and unbelief. Read with me again the closing three verses of chapter 9. Verse 31, But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, 
I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Israel missed Christ. Israel missed the blessing of the promise of the Gospel by faith alone. Israel didn't grasp what Romans, what all of their Scriptures were all about. And then we come to chapter 10. We find then that believing Gentiles are accepted. And this isn't something that's just new for the church age, if you will. It's been true all along. But read chapter 10, verses 11 and following. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God called and formed Israel, but not all follow Him. The distinction between Israel and Israel is that between faith and unbelief. Believing Gentiles are accepted as God's people too. It's always been that way. And now even the Old Testament spoke and predicted God's use of the Gentiles to provoke Israel. Again, chapter 10. Read from verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation will I anger you. Now just pause. This is the Pentateuch. This is Moses. Israel's chief lawgiver. The first man under God given to the inscripturation of His Word. He's already talking about the age in which we live. We read on. But Isaiah is very bold. Verse 20 and saith, I was found of them that sought Me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. So here we have what Paul has been working through. In chapter 11, he brings this argument, this answer. You remember the pieces of this, this defense of God. This defense of God's faithfulness. I don't know how much emphasis we'll give to it as we come through our summary of chapter 11 today. But the gifts and calling of God, Paul concludes in chapter 11, but without repentance. There's a defense of the faithfulness of God throughout this argument. So I want to come today really to a simple outline of chapter 11 to conclude Paul's treatment of this question about Israel. And really today, what I said last time or last week almost applies more. This is one of those messages where I fear it will either be too short or way too long. We'll try and find the happy medium. I'm not going to try and answer every question that these points and these verses bring to us. There are certainly details that are difficult and have harder questions about them. But I think the overall argument, the main thrust, is exceedingly clear. And so I just want to put before you today four statements that summarize his argument here in Romans 11. Statement number one, Israel's chastening is in part. 
Israel's chastening is in part. I'm using the word chastening. Uh, Paul will more than once use the word blindness. The season of blindness that belongs to the nation of Israel. I'm just using the word chastening to summarize it as we go along. But look with me at some key verses in arguing this statement. Israel's chastening is in part. In verse 5, Paul says, Even so then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. He's making use of the theme of the remnant that's been prominent through the Old Testament history of Israel. There were seasons in Israel's own history when they still existed as a nation in which they were in large part in unbelief and apostasy. We'll come back to Isaiah's exclamation, or excuse me, Elijah's exclamation here in a few minutes. So there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Given that there's a remnant now, a believing people in the midst of the national people, Israel's chastening obviously is not total. It's in part. Read in verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now skip down to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So Israel's chastening is in part. Paul himself speaks of himself as an Israelite. Paul in this way says, I'm part of both. They're not all Israel which are of Israel. Well, I'm of that Israel. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I have all these Jewish credentials. I have Jewish experience, Jewish ancestry. I'm a Jew. I'm of Israel. I'm also a believer. I'm also part of the Israel that knows and believes the promises. And so you can't say that God has cut off Israel in its entirety. Israel's chastening is in part. That chastening... That blindness, that to use another phrase from the chapter, that cutting off is a national cutting off. The main characteristic of the nation, the bent to which they have gone. Chapter 10 describes their stumbling at the end of chapter 9 at the stumbling block which Christ was to them. Why was He a stumbling block? Because they sought to be God's people by their own righteousness. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. As all legalists, They minimized the law instead of understanding its implications that say they could never save themselves by it. They could never live up to that standard. They go about to establish their own righteousness. They don't submit themselves to the righteousness of God. And so here, Israel is chastened for their unbelief. God has not abandoned them. And God still, as we read earlier, is a remnant of them according to the election of grace. So, Israel's chastening is in part. Secondly, Israel's chastening is a blessing to the Gentiles. Israel's chastening is a blessing to the Gentiles. Verse 11, I say then, 
Have they stumbled that they should fall? Is God's purpose in chastening them a malicious purpose purely to cast them off entirely and abandon His former promises? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Now we'll pause there. That's our statement. Israel's chastening is a blessing to the Gentiles. We'll come back to the last phrase. What's this blessing's ultimate purpose? It's not that their blessing of the Gentiles is irrelevant, that it's temporary, that it's not real gospel blessing, but that God is going to use this blessing of the Gentiles that He'll discuss and that we're living to provoke them to jealousy. He's going to use His chastening of the nation. He's going to use His blessing of the other nations to bring them back. To provoke them to jealousy. Read verse 15 as well. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So the diminishing of Israel, the setting aside in mass that massive unbelieving portion of the people, working with only a remnant of them, and now sending this Gospel to the Gentiles. That's the riches of the Gentiles. The casting away of them is the reconciling of the Gentiles. The reconciling of the world unto Himself. And then Paul in this treatment, which is really the beefiest part of the chapter, Israel's chastening being a blessing to the Gentiles, he goes into this wonderful illustration of the olive tree. This is where I have to put the the, the brakes on and not drift off into other subjects. But in this teaching of the olive tree, he's emphasizing what he began the whole book of Romans emphasizing. You remember in chapter 1, this Gospel of God to which Paul is separated is the Gospel that he preached before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, etc., etc. That one Gospel through the ages. Now what's he highlighting in chapter 11? One people through the ages. And as he goes into the illustration of the olive tree, This covenant people of God, this blessing, this covenant of grace that God entered into after Adam's fall. He is peculiarly honoring that promise through sending Christ through this nation that He's formed in order to do so. But unbelievers among that people are are broken off. And these of us scattered peoples, these wild olive trees that have long ago entered into our apostasy, long ago deserved the abandonment of God and received it in measure, He's now graciously visiting again. And He's taking wild olive branches and breaking them off of those ungodly trees and melding them into His own people. And so the picture here I say again could not be more clear of one people made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. 
So Israel's chastening is in this way a blessing to the Gentiles. But notice, if you will, the applications for us that Paul doesn't leave off. One of them is obvious, we'll come to in a moment, another not so obvious that really smote me in meditation upon the chapter this week. Paul, as he gives this, he pauses. He says, you Gentiles, you're hearing all this about God chastening Israel because of their unbelief, because of their self-righteousness, about going about to establish their own righteousness, and becoming ignorant of the Gospel. You take heed. You know how easily your flesh can twist the truth as theirs did? And say, yeah, God looked at me and said, that's a pretty good branch over there. I'm going to put that one in my group. Are we going to start thinking about some merit? Some righteousness of our own? And become ignorant of the righteousness of God which is by faith? He warns. Gentiles. He warns us in this age of our blessing and Israel's chastening. Of our seeing and being given light and Israel's blindness. Don't be puffed up. You stand by faith. Have a fear of God. So He warns the blessed Gentiles against pride. Can I suggest as well that He warns us blessed Gentiles against despair? We mentioned earlier coming back to look at His use of Elijah in verse 2. He uses him as an illustration of the remnant. That remnant even among the unbelieving nation. But what is true of Elijah then? God hath not cast away, verse 2, His people which He foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture says of Elias, how he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they kill thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And of course, God gives the answer. I've reserved 7,000. I have a mighty remnant that hasn't bowed the knee to the image of Baal, Elijah. To be honest, as I wrestle with this application, it's kind of hard to draw the distinction between despair and pride. Elijah could have had some measure of pride he struggled with and he said, I'm, I'm left, but Lord, you got me. I'm the man. Or perhaps it is despair that is more prominent in Elijah's heart. Lord, what are you doing? I thought you called me for this purpose. Thought you called me to preach against this massive apostasy to Baal. You've given clear, miraculous vindication of who you are and the emptiness, the deadness, the non existence of Baal, and yet they're not revived. What are you doing? Where we find Elijah in a similar place we've been finding Jonah in recent weeks, set aside and alone. Lord, you have to work this way in order for things to work out. Hmm. So Elijah and Jonah, you know better than me how things have to be in order to work out, in order for me to get glory. We can look at our world And we can say, Lord, what are you doing? 
you know it's not going to work out if things keep going this way. We're out here preaching. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to be like Jonah and tell Israel what they need to hear. And you're sending me off to Nineveh? Lord, You've sent me to challenge the prophets of Baal. you sent three years of famine at My Word. You brought me to such prominence. You brought me to the kingdom for such a time as this, and now you're not sending revival? Do we despair? Lord, Your remnant, Your activity has to be of this number and it has to be this visible in order for me to be encouraged. I think we live that way sometimes. And then we begin to fret. Fretting is not faith. We read the news, we hear it, we can get fretful. God isn't fretful. God isn't frustrated. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. I'm not suggesting trials and tribulations and troubles should be taken lightly. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be burdened for a world that's in apostasy and unbelief and reaping the sad consequences of apostasy and unbelief. But some of the calm, some of the joy that is on the throne should touch us even in the worst of days. And so when we look at the blessing of the Gentiles. I say let us be kept back from pride as Israel was puffed up in pride during their days of blessing. And also let us be kept back from despair when we find ourselves part of a remnant that's, well, to us, invisible. God has to tell Elijah, no, it's there. It's there. But back to our statements with regard to the chapter. Israel's chastening is in part. Israel's chastening is a blessing to the Gentiles. Thirdly, Israel's chastening is not permanent. Israel's chastening is not permanent. Here's where we come into the questions that sometimes occur among men of different understandings of future. I don't want to try and hammer out and debate all the different ramifications. Just to say this, the distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel is clear. And when we come to Romans 11, Paul is speaking of Israel as a nation. It is in that way and in that way only that Israel has been cut off. And it is in the same way that Israel is cut off that Israel is grafted in again. There's some who take the view that the New Testament church, the blessing of the Gentiles, is the promise that Israel was given. That it is indeed the fullness of Israel. But look with me if you will in verse 12. Paul says, now if the fall of them, this is national Israel, clearly through the context, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? 
Okay, he speaks of the falling, the blindness, the casting off of them, of this national Israel. And in this casting off of them, this chastening of them, Gentiles are being blessed. How much more their fullness? If you don't see a future for the nation that's cut off, being grafted in again, then you interpret the fullness of Israel as the church age, as the Gentile blessing. But he's saying no. It's something distinct from subsequent to the blessing of the Gentiles. If the casting off of the nation has blessed the nations, the other nations, how much more are the other nations going to be blessed when they're visited again? Now all, I said a couple of weeks ago, all three of the millennial views can understand and I think should and must understand a future for the nation from Romans 11. An older amillennial view that takes the church age as everything that Israel was promised doesn't see a future for the nation and I think Romans 11 is their most difficult portion. I mean, I would bring many, many others in. There are some. John Murray's commentary in Romans, I think, shook some in the middle of the last century. There's some even of the amillennial school. I think they take to themselves a title now, optimistic amillennialists. They still don't see a future kingdom age the way postmillennialists and premillennialists see a future age. But they do see a revival, a visiting of national Israel again. Because clearly, Paul in this chapter is saying the same way in which Israel is cut off, that isn't individual believing people that are Jews, they were nationally cut off. They were nationally in apostasy. God's going to visit that people again and bless them again. And so this chastening of Israel is not permanent. There is, just as there was a casting away, a gathering in. Just as there was a fall of them, there is going to be a fullness of them. This casting away, I say, is not permanent. And so lastly, our fourth statement today is this. Israel's blessing will bring God's fullest and final blessing to the world. Read again. Verse 12 and verse 15. If the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. Again, who was cast away? How were they cast away? What shall the receiving of them be? Interestingly, but life from the dead. Now again, we're not going to chase every thought, but I'm always taken with this because if you look at the Old Testament prophecies, I look at them as a premillennialist, a historic premillennialist. You see a day of Israel's culmination of her chastening and of the nations coming against her, her almost certain demise and God redeeming His people. As Paul even quotes from Isaiah, the Deliverer, coming out of Zion. When does that occur? The resurrection occurs when that return occurs. When that kingdom is established. 
Turn back with me, if you would, just for a moment to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12, verses 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day. Let me just pause through this whole chapter and several other such chapters in the Old Testament prophets. There's a repetition of that day in that day. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon Me whom they pierced. And they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son. And shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. It's a day coming in which unbelieving Israel, apostate, blinded Israel, is going to have her eyes opened. She's going to look upon Him whom she's pierced. There'll be mourning. Can you imagine the mourning of this nation, of this religious body that has given itself to the rejection of her own promises. That has committed itself to suppressing the truth and light that its promised Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth. One who was given to the shameful death of a cross. That can't be our Messiah. We've got different, better plans than to have someone like that be who we were waiting for. And yet, what is Isaiah 53 all about? We esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. No form nor comeliness that we should desire Him. And that is how Israel, that's how Paul himself viewed this Jesus until the light and power of grace opened His eyes. Think of that day that Isaiah speaks of. Think of that day that Zechariah speaks of when God pours upon them the Spirit of grace and supplications. Their casting away has been a blessing because God has sent the good news of Jesus into the rest of the world. But there's a day coming which He's going to visit them and open their eyes. They will have been in covenant with one professing to be their final answer. Christ said, another will come in His own name and you'll receive. They will, as all seems to be lost, have their eyes opened and they will receive Jesus. And what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? It is when this Jesus, when this penitent Israel Isaiah speaks of, because that servant song is Israel's penitential confession. He came. We missed Him. What will it be but life from the dead? You look at the Old Testament prophecies. It's at that second advent that the resurrection occurs. 
Paul says to the Thessalonians and Corinthians, it's when that resurrection occurs that we're taken up to be with them. Israel's blessing will bring God's fullest and final blessing to the world. What will the receiving of them be? Life from the beginning. God hasn't cast away His people when you're foreknown. It's coming a day, just as Israel in mass is in unbelief and apostasy today, and God allows it to save multitudes of us and to provoke them to jealousy by a people that weren't a people. He's going to visit them again. And if we've been blessed in their blindness, what kind of blessing are we going to have when everybody's eyes are open? Life. Here I say, in this filling in the gap and answering this question about is God faithful or not, we see the world's ultimate blessing. God is not untrustworthy. He hasn't cast away His people whom He foreknew. He hasn't chosen to not honor His promise. And you don't need to worry about Him not honoring any promises in this Gospel that are made to you. He's worthy to be trusted. Israel's chastening is in part. Israel's chastening is a blessing to the Gentiles. Israel's chastening is not permanent. Israel's blessing will bring God's fullest and final blessing to the world. I trust the Lord will bless these there we say hasty summary thoughts on this most significant chapter. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Lord, we come perhaps with questions that multiply as we consider this unfolding of Your purpose for that nation. And yet, Lord, it is in the Gospel that all the questions are answered. Give us wisdom. Lord, give us Gospel hearts even in wrestling with pieces of this that are stated clearly and other parts of it that aren't quite so clear to see. But what shines as a beacon light through it all is that one Gospel that one believing, redeemed people throughout all the ages waiting for the coming again for that Deliverer to arise out of Zion and for there to be life from the dead. Bless Your Word to us, we ask. Do give us Gospel wisdom in these perplexing times. And keep us from pride and from despair. Let us be resting in a sovereign, omnipotent God, a loving, worthy Savior. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.